Uh, last week we started a little mini-series on apologetics, and, and last week uh, I encourage you, if you weren't here, the, the outline is back there at, in the, on the back table. Uh, we, studied, we, we studied the evaluation of the eyewitness of the, of the testimony of the gospel writers, and it was based on a book by J. Warner Wallace, who was a speaker here at our church several years ago. And the name of the book is called Cold Case Christianity. And he used his detective techniques from being a cold case detective to apply that to examining the eyewitness testimony. And we went through that last week, and it was basically in four points. Were the gospel writers present when they wrote what they said they wrote? Were the gospel writers' works corroborated? Did other people corroborate what they write? Did they self-cooperate? Did their eyewitness testimony blend together? And then we also looked at the construction of the language that they used, the names that they used, the locations that they referred to were all testimony that they were, they were writing from the places they said they were writing. They named places and used names that were common in the first century A.D. And then we also have non-biblical eyewitness accounts. And... Uh, they were confirmed by five different secular writers, starting with Josephus. And then archaeology continues to confirm what the Bible says. Archaeology has never contradicted what the Bible has said. And then the third thing that we looked at, were the Gospels accounts accurate? We looked at the disciples, John, Paul, and Peter, and looked at the chain of custody of what they wrote by their disciples. And did they maintain the gospel message throughout time so that we know today we have the same message that they taught? And were the gospel writers biased? And last but not least, did they have a reason to lie? Was there a reason for financial gain, sexual relationships, or other relationships? Or were they driven by power? All that evidence was presented to us as if we were like jurors in a courtroom. We have to examine all that evidence that was presented and make a decision. And I ask you all to make a decision. And I pray that you all make a decision that the gospel is correct and what we have today has been faithfully preserved through the message that we have. So in the outline, you have all those different testimonies of who all the different people are and when they lived and everything. And you can get one in the back if you weren't here last week. Also, one other, uh, I thought, uh, very compelling piece of evidence, and this handout is also in the back of the church. Early Christian New Testament quotes plus manuscripts that we have before 325 A.D. I'd always heard you could reconstruct the Bible from these writings, except seven verses. Well, not quite that good, but pretty good. 99% of the Gospels are quoted before 325 A.D. This is before we had a completed New Testament, all combined into one. Paul, 84%. Total, 61% of the Bible can, is, is found in the quotes of the early New Testament writers and the early pieces of papyrus and manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. So it's, it's a pretty amazing statistic uh, to think that all this has come down over time and that we have that kind of accuracy. So today we're going to look at another book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas and Michael Lacona. And we're going to look at it from a historian point of view now. 
We looked at it from a cold case detective point of view, and now we're going to look at it from a historian point of view. Some people object to, uh, about Jesus uh, with a comment, well, a risen Jesus would have made a greater impact. Why didn't more people write about him? A lot of old writings have been lost over time. Some Christian writers refer to other writers and quote them, and they quote that, hey, they had a 144-volume book of the history, and we don't have those books, but we have little snippets of quotes from those. So a lot has been lost, but what we do have is very, very impressive when you consider how much has been lost. We can start, of course, with the nine traditional writers of the New Testament. There were 20 Christian authors that talked about Jesus. Four heretical writings mentioned Jesus within 150 years of the death of the cross. So we have the nine plus 20 plus four, 33 sources of information that talked about Jesus within 150 years of his death. Moreover, there's nine secular Christian sources that mentions Jesus within 150 years. Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Flagian, Lucian, Celsus, Suetonius, Talus, and Maris Serapon. Nine more on top of the 33. 42 historical sources that Jesus walked this earth. In comparison, let's look at Julius Caesar, one of Rome's most prominent figures. Caesar is well known from his military conquests. After his Gallic Wars, he made the famous statement, I came, I saw, I conquered. Only five sources report his military conquest, one of which is Caesar himself. If Julius Caesar really made a profound impact on the Roman society, why didn't more writers of antiquity mention his great military accomplishments. No one questions whether Julius did make a tremendous impact on the Roman Empire. It is evident that he did. Yet in those 150 years after his death, more non-Christian authors alone comment on Jesus than all the sources who mention Julius Caesar's great military conquest within 150 years of his death. Let's bring it even closer to Jesus' time. Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' ministry and execution. Tiberius is mentioned by 10 sources within 150 years of his death. Nine of them are secular, and one is Luke, a Christian writer. Compare that to Jesus' 42 total sources in the same length of time. That's more than four times the number of historical references to Jesus mentioned of the Roman emperor. If we only consider the number of secular non-Christian sources who mention Jesus, Tiberius, within 150 years of their lives, it's a tie, nine to nine. So I would say a lot has been written about Jesus as an historical figure in ancient times, 42 times. The resurrection is important because it's the key cornerstone, obviously, of the Christian faith. It was the Focal point of the gospel's writer's teachings. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, For I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 John 1, 1.3, we read, 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which was we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Belief in the resurrection is required for salvation. Paul writes in Romans 10.9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the resurrection secured for us an inheritance in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. If the resurrection did not occur, we are lost, as Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection was the evidence that Jesus provided to validate his own teachings. So the Jews said to him in John two eighteen through 21, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The resurrection was also the chief evidence provided by the apostles that Christianity is true. And in Acts 17, 2, 3, we read, And Paul went in and was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is Christ. Do you think he referred to Isaiah 53? Therefore, Jesus' resurrection largely confirms Jesus' claims that much of Christian doctrine and the truthfulness of Christianity. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Do you see why the resurrection is important? There's at least four reasons to support the likelihood that Jesus actually predicted his resurrection. These predictions are denied usually because the resurrection itself is denied as an historical event. If, however, the resurrection occurred, the reason for rejecting Jesus' predictions concerning it fails. The Gospels provide embarrassing testimony concerning the disciples and the women in relation to Jesus' resurrection. They were either truly distraught or didn't believe. The principle of embarrassment supports authenticity. It seems unlikely that the disciples or early Christians who have respected them would invent predictions of Jesus, which in hindsight cast them in negative ways when we talk about the women being the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. 
at least four reasons support the likelihood that Jesus actually predicted his resurrection. Jesus used the title, the Son of Man, in reference to his predictions of his own resurrection that we read in Mark, heavily supports authenticity. The New Testament epistles never refer to him in this manner, nor did the Jews think of the Son of Man in the sense of the suffering Messiah that was referred to in Daniel 7, 13, 14. Thus, the principle of dissimilarity may be employed, which focuses on the words or deeds of Jesus that cannot be derived either from Judaism at the time of Jesus or from the early church after him. Jesus' predictions concerning his resurrection are multiply attested to in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So what these authors did in this book have come up with what they call the minimal facts. We're going to look at five minimal facts of the historical evidence for Jesus. By considering only these facts that are both strongly supported by evidence, that are conceded by most every scholar, even those who are skeptical, the authors present the four plus one facts. Four of the acts meet that criteria. It's almost universally accepted that these first four facts are universally accepted as historical facts. And the last one, 75% attested to by the uh, non-believing people believe that the tomb was empty, 75%. The arguments for Jesus' resurrection is that Jesus' disciples sincerely believed he rose from the dead and appeared to them. External evidence and events support the authenticity of their belief in his resurrection, the conversion of the church persecutor Paul, the conversion of the skeptic James, and the empty tomb. Since no plausible opposing theory exists that can account for the historical facts, Jesus' resurrection is the only plausible explanation. We must use our minds and reason together. So the first point, the first historical fact, Jesus died by crucifixion. Crucifixion was a common form of execution applied by the Romans to punish members of the lower class, slaves, soldiers, the violently rebellious, and those accused of treason. The first century Jewish historian Josephus reports that during the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the Roman soldiers felt such hatred towards the Jews that they crucified a multitude of them in various postures. And when he says multitude, he means multitude. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands were crucified. Crucifixion was a torturous death. In the first century B.C., Cicero calls it the most horrendous torture. So hideous was the act of crucifixion upon a man that he also writes that the true word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. In fact, the word excruciating originates from the word crucifixion, i.e., the pain, like the pain of crucifixion, is excruciating. Tassus, in the second century, refers to it as the extreme penalty. As we know, Jesus' death by resurrection is reported by all four gospel writers. However, a a number of non-Christian sources of the period report that event as well. Josephus writes, 
when Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified. Tacitus reports, Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated by the abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of our own of our procurator, Pontius Pilate. Lucian of Samosata, I'm not sure I said that right, the Greek satirist writes, the Christians you know worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on their account. Admirer Barserapin, writing on his son from prison, comments, or what advantage came to the Jews by the murder of their wise king? seeing that from that very time, their kingdom was driven away from them. Because in 70 AD, the Jewish system was ended. Jerusalem was destroyed. Clearly, Jesus' death by crucifixion is an historical fact supported by considerable evidence. Point number two, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Disciples believe Jesus rose from the dead. There is virtual consensus among scholars who study Jesus' resurrection that subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples really believe that he appeared to them risen from the dead. This conclusion can be reached by data that suggests, one, the disciples themselves claim that the risen Jesus had appeared to them. Two, subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples were radically transformed from fearful, cowering individuals who denied and abandoned him after his arrest and execution and transformed into bold proclaimers of the gospel and the risen Lord. They remained steadfast in the face of imprisonment, torture, and martyrdom. It is clear that they sincerely believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So the first point, they claimed it. The gospel writers claimed it. First, Jesus' disciples claimed he rose from the dead and appeared to them. This conclusion can be reached from the nine early independent sources that fall into three categories. The testimony of Paul, who wasn't one of the four original gospel writers. The oral tradition that passed through the early church. And the written tradition or works of the early church. Paul provides very strong evidence for establishing the resurrection claims of the original disciples. He claimed that his own authority in the church was equal to that of the other apostles. That authority was acknowledged by a number of apostolic fathers soon after the completion of the New Testament. The early writers may have been disciples of the apostles. In fact, there were several that were. Paul reported that he knew at least some of the other disciples, even the big three, Peter, James, and John. Acts reports that disciples and Paul knew and fellowshiped with one another. Other early Christian writers within 100 years of Jesus also seem to hold that the disciples and Paul were colleagues since they included Paul in the group called the Apostles. Therefore, what he has to say, what Paul has to say concerning the other Apostles is very, very important. Paul, what did he have to say? Paul said the disciples claim Jesus 
rose. In Galatians 2, 1 through 3, we read, that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. They were, he was making sure the gospel he was presenting was the same gospel they were presenting. And he got confirmation with that visit with Peter, James, and John. In 1 Corinthians 15, 11, after he just presented the gospel, Paul writes, whether then it was I or they, the, the other apostles or himself, or they, so we preach, that gospel he just referred to, and so you believed. So Paul is claiming what the other apostles have said. Then Paul looks at his own authority. It's claimed by Paul in several verses. We'll look at just first, 2 Corinthians 13.10. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of my authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul's authority is also acknowledged by three Christian apostolic fathers. Clement of Rome, who was a disciple of Paul and Peter. Polycarp, a disciple of John. And Ignatius, a disciple of John. All three of them know, knew, when I say they were disciples, they knew him personally and walked and talked with them. Oral tradition, an early creed. We read that as our scripture reading last week. And it's one of the strongest testimonies. And people say, we should memorize this part of the scripture. 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just read 3 through 8. And I'm going to emphasize certain words that lead us to believe that this is an early creed. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with scripture. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though that some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to the untimely born, he appeared also to me. How do we know this is a creed? Delivered and received communicates that Paul is giving them the tradition that he received. It contains indicators of an Aramaic origin. In fact, when I was reading this last week, I'd forgotten this point. It's like, why did he say Cephas and not Peter? Because that's Aramaic for Peter. And there's a four, fourfold use of the Greek term hoti, H-O-T-I, that's the word that in the English, that is common in creeds. In the text, is. Content is stylized containing parallelisms, and it's using non-Pauline terms. So Paul is delivering something he's heard and writing it down in Scripture, something that early Christians who didn't have copies of the New Testament or any of the letters had to memorize things, and they used creeds and songs to remember things. And this is a creed that's written in a form that's easy to memorize, just like the Apostles' Creed is easy and written in a form to memorize. So when was that creed written? Very soon after Jesus Christ's crucifixion. Most scholars believe within five years. 
The crucifixion is dated A.D. 30, Paul's conversion A.D. 31 to 33. Paul goes away for three years after his conversion, then visits Peter and James in Jerusalem that he tells us in Galatians 1, 18 and 19. And most scholars believe that's when Paul received the creed from them. The other option is that he received the creed at the time of his conversion in Damascus, which would make it even earlier in time, around 31 to 33. The very latest dating that you could date this is A.D. 51, when Paul first visited the Corinthians. He had already had this information. Now I want to look at what you consider biblical information and extra-biblical extra biblical information, if you will. Paul quotes secular writers in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, he says, Do not be deceived. Do be, excuse me, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Titus 1.12, he writes, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. In Acts 17.28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. But this does not make them New Testament sources. He's quoting from something outside of the New Testament and writing it down. Evidence that demonstrates that the creed existed prior to Paul's writings and was not originating by him can be claimed as a non-New Testament source. Paul's evidence includes the terms delivered and received and the non-Pauline terms leads us to believe that this is a non-New Testament source in an early oral tradition. The points about this oral tradition and why it's so important, it's early testimony that Jesus was resurrected within five years of his resurrection probably from eyewitnesses of the resurrection itself. Multiple testimonies to Jesus' resurrection. Peter, the 12, more than the 500 at one time, James and all the apostles and Paul. And his post-resurrection appearances to the 12, the 500 plus, and all the apostles. Other types of oral traditions in the New Testament. The sermon summaries that we see in Acts, Acts 1 through 5, 10, 13, and 17. The sermons of Jesus and the apostles had to have been summaries prepared after the fact by those who had heard them. Most sermons last longer than five minutes, yet most of the sermons in the New Testament can be read in that time or less. For these reasons and others, most scholars agree that many of the sermons in Acts contain oral summaries included in the text that can be traced to the earliest teachings of the church and possibly to the disciples themselves. So when is the origin of sermon dated, these sermon summaries dated? Probably within 20 to 30 years of Jesus' crucifixion. On the back of that other handout, I talk about the quotes as the dating of the, of the gospel writers. And you can see that they're written within 30 years, except for John, which was 70 years. When is the origin? When, yeah, Important points concerning the sermon summaries. Early testimony, again, of Jesus' resurrection. Eyewitness testimony of, of Jesus' resurrection. And group appearances that we see in Acts 10 and 13. Then we have written tradition. All four Gospels, 
Regardless of critic skepticism concerning the Gospels, they contain multiple claims written within 70 years of Jesus, that Jesus rose from the dead, John being the last one that I just mentioned. Also, the apostolic fathers, Clement of Rome, who we already mentioned as as a disciple of Peter and Paul, in his letter to Corinthian, this is a very important letter because it's written in A.D. 95. It's the oldest letter we have outside of the New Testament. And here's what he wrote. Therefore, having received orders and complete certainty caused by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and believing in the word of God, they went with the Holy Spirit's certainty, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is about to come. Then Polycarp, a disciple of John, wrote in 1 AD 110. He wrote to the Philippian church, speaking of the righteousness and endurance witnessed in the lives of the several, including... Paul himself and other apostles, of them he says, for they did not love the present age, but whom who died for the benefit and for the sake was raised by God. In fact, Polycarp mentions the resurrection of Jesus five times in this letter. So they claimed it. And an acronym that you can use to remember these points is POW, Paul Oral tradition, written tradition, if you're witnessing to anybody. First, we have Paul, who claims to have known and fellowship with the disciples firsthand. He says what they, what they said. Second, we know of some of the very early oral traditions that was circulating within the church before the New Testament was even written and points to the disciples saying it. One of the other oral traditions is, Jesus is Lord. That would be an easy one to memorize. Jesus is Lord. They were, that was drilled into their heads as they learned it to remember it. Third, we have written tradition that portrays or assumes the disciples saying that Jesus had appeared to them after those who rose from the dead. In all, we have nine independent sources. So you can see why there is virtually unanimous consensus among scholars today who hold that Jesus' original disciples said that he appeared to them risen from the dead. They believed it. Their transformation is strongly documented. From men who abandoned and denied Jesus at his rest and execution, as I mentioned, to men to their own harm, boldly and publicly proclaimed him risen from the dead. We read that in in Luke that he wrote in Acts 7 and 12. Clement of Rome, a contemporary of the apostles, reports the sufferings and the deaths of the apostles Peter and Paul. Ignatius, another disciple of John, who likely, who likely knew the apostles, he knew John for sure, reports that the disciples were so encouraged by seeing and touching the risen Jesus, they were unaffected by the fear of martyrdom. Polycarp, another disciple of John, instructed and appointed by the apostles, and attests that Paul and all the apostles suffered. Dionysus of Corinth also mentioned the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. Tertullian, a historian, he writes that Paul is beheaded, has been written in their own blood. And if a heretic wishes his confidence to rest upon the public record, the archives of the empire will speak, as would the stones of Jerusalem. 
We read the lies of the Caesars at Rome. Nero was the first who stained with blood the rising faith. Then in Peter, girt by another, when he is made fast to the cross. Then does Paul obtain a birth suited to Roman citizenship. When in Rome, he springs to life and again ennobled by martyrdom. Here we hear that Paul was beheaded and Peter died by crucifixion on a cross. Origen writes, Jesus, who has both once risen himself and led his disciples to believe in his resurrection and so thoroughly persuaded them to, of its truth that they show to all men by their sufferings how they are able to laugh at all the troubles of life, beholding the life eternal and the resurrection clearly demonstrated to them by both word and deed. Another origins writings, he talks about Peter being crucified upside down and that Paul had been martyred in Rome under Nero. The disciples were willing to suffer and die for their beliefs in the case that they certainly regarded those beliefs as true. The case is strong that they did not willfully lie about the appearance of the risen Jesus. Liars make poor martyrs. No one questions the sincerity of a Muslim terrorist who blows himself up in the public's place or a Buddhist monk who burns himself alive as a political protest. Extreme acts do not validate the truth of their beliefs, but the willingness to die indicates that they regarded their beliefs as true. Moreover, there is an important difference between the apostles' martyrs and those who die for their beliefs today. Modern martyrs act solely out of their trust and beliefs that others have taught them. The apostles die for holding to their testimony that they had personally seen the risen Jesus. Contemporary martyrs die for what they believe to be true. The disciples of Jesus die for what they knew to be true. In all, at least seven early sources testify that the original disciples willingly suffered in defense of all their beliefs. If we conclude the sufferings and the martyrdoms of Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, we have 11 sources. Notice what has happened when we consider the fact that the disciples' claims and beliefs that they had actually have seen the risen Jesus. Since the original disciples were making the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection was not a result of myth-making. We hear that a lot of times. Oh, it's a myth. His life was not embellished over time, if the facts can be traced to the original witnesses, which we have done. So it's not been embellished. The story we have today is the same story it was back then. Moreover, if the direct witnesses really believe that he rose from the dead, we can dismiss the contentions that they stole the body and made up the story. In fact, virtually all scholars agree of the point, whatever their own theological positions, that they believe they saw the risen Lord. Point number three, the conversion of the church persecutor, Paul, an enemy of the church. Paul's notorious pre-Christian activities and conversions are multiply attested. We have Paul's own testimony Luke's record in Acts and the story that was circulating among the Christians in Galatia that Paul was persecuting the church. Paul's conversion is so interesting because he was an enemy of the church when he claimed to have seen the risen Lord. 
Thus, Jesus' resurrection is testified by friends, the, the previous apostles, and now Paul, who was an enemy of the church, is now attesting to the, personally seeing the resurrected Lord. His belief that he had witnessed the risen Christ was so strong that he, like the original disciples, were willing to suffer continuously for the sake of the gospel, even to the point of martyrdom. This point is well-documented, reported by Paul himself, as well as Luke, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, Dionysus of Corinth, and Origen. Therefore, we have early, multiple, and firsthand testimony that Paul was indeed converted. Paul's conversion was based on what he perceived to be a personal appearance of the risen Lord. Today, we might believe that Jesus rose from the dead based on secondary evidence, trusting Paul and the disciples who saw the risen Jesus. But for Paul, his experience came from primary evidence. The risen Jesus appeared directly to him. He did not merely believe based on the testimony of someone else. Therefore, the difference is primary versus secondary sources. For most, we believe based on secondary sources. And even when religious belief is based on primary grounds, no other founder of a major religion is believed to have been raised from the dead, let alone have provided any evidence of such an event. The disciple Paul and James, who we'll look at in just a second, believe based on primary evidence. Point number four, the conversion of the skeptic James. We do not have the same wealth of historical information of the life of James that we have for Paul. However, we have enough information to conclude that after the alleged events of Jesus' resurrection, James, the brother of Jesus, became a convert to Christianity because he believed the risen Jesus appeared to him. This conclusion is arrived at because the Gospels report that Jesus' brothers, including James, were unbelievers during his ministry. We read that in Mark 321, 31, 6, 3 through 4, and John 7, 5. The ancient creedal material in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7 that we just read discussed earlier lists in the appearance of Jesus to James. Then he appeared to James. Subsequent to the alleged event of Jesus' resurrection, James is identified as a leader of the Jerusalem church. We read in Acts 15. 12 and Galatians 1.19. Not only did James convert to Christianity, his beliefs in Jesus and his resurrection were so strong that he died as a martyr because of them. James' martyrdom is attested by Josephus, Hegespus, and Clement of Alexandria. I'm going to read one testimony about James from Hegespus. That tells you the character of James. James, the brother of the Lord, succeeded the government of the church in conjunction with the apostles. He had been called the just by all from the time of our Savior to the present day. For there were many that bore the name James. So he was James the just. He was holy from his mother's womb and he drank no wine nor strong drink, nor did he eat flesh. No razor came upon his head. He did not anoint himself with oil and he did not use the public bath. He alone was permitted to enter into the holy place, for he wore not woolen, but linen garments. And he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple, 
and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people for their sins so that his knees became hard like those of a camel in consequence of his constantly bending them in the worship of God, asking for forgiveness of the people. Because of exceeding great justice, he was called just and noblius, which signifies in Greek, bulwark of the people and justice in accordance with the prophets declared concerning him. Point number five, the empty tomb. As mentioned, roughly 75% of skeptics agree that the empty tomb is historical, is historical fact. Let's look at just three of those arguments. The Jerusalem factor. Jesus was publicly executed in Jerusalem. His postmodern appearances and empty tomb were first proclaimed publicly in Jerusalem. It would have been impossible for Christianity to get off the ground in Jerusalem if the body had still been in the tomb. His enemies and the Jewish leadership and the Roman government would only have had to exhume the corpse and publicly display it for that hoax to be shattered. Next, we have enemy attestation. The empty tomb is attested to not only by Christians' sources, but Jesus' enemies, albeit, albeit indirectly. Hence, we are not employing an argument of silence. Rather than point to an occupied tomb, early critics accused Jesus' disciples of stealing the body. That's reported in Matthew 28 by Justin Martyr and Tertullian. There would have been no need for an attempt to account for a missing body if the body had still been in the tomb. When the boy tells the teacher that the dog ate his homework, this is an indirect admission that his homework is unavailable for assessment. Likewise, the early Jewish claims report regarding Jesus' resurrection was to accuse the, Bible, the disciples of stealing the body, an indirect admission that the body was unavailable for public display. This is the only early opposing theory we know of that was offered by Jesus' enemies. The last point, the testimony of women. When we come to the account of the empty tomb, women are listed as primary witnesses. They are not only the first witnesses mentioned, they are also mentioned in all four Gospels, whereas male witnesses appear only later and in only two of the Gospels. This would be an odd invention since both Jewish and Roman cultures, women were lowly esteemed and their testimony was regarded as questionable, certainly not as credible as a man. In fact, they weren't allowed to testify in court. The testimony of women gives us here gives the low given the low first century view of women that was frequently shared by the Jews and Gentiles it seems highly unlikely that the gospel authors would either invent or adjust such testimonies that would mean placing words in the mouths of those who would not be delivered by many making them primary witnesses of the empty tomb if the gospel writers had originated the story of the empty tomb, it seems far more likely that they would have depicted men discovering its vacancy and being the first to see the risen Jesus. This gives us a sense of authenticity. Why would they not list the male disciples or even Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus and avoid the female issue altogether because of the times? 
if the account of the empty tomb had been invented, it would most likely not have listed, listed the women as the primary witnesses, since in that day, as we mentioned, the women's testimony was not as credible. Thus, the empty tomb appears to be historically credible in light of the principle of embarrassment. When we talk about the principle of embarrassment, that's a principle that historians look at when they're looking at ancient evidence. Never has nothing meant so much as when we come to the empty tomb of Jesus. As was said in the television sitcom Seinfeld, it is a story about nothing. And yet at the same time, it's the story about everything. If the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead, then God exists and eternal life is both possible and available. We may find the acronym JET is a useful way to remember the arguments, the Jerusalem factor, enemy attestation, and the testimony of women. Perhaps no fact is more widely recognized than the early Christian believers had real experiences that they thought the appearance of the reason they saw the risen Jesus. In particular, virtually all scholars recognize Paul's testimony that he had experienced that he believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Equally well recognized that James, the brother of Jesus, was an unbeliever before he thought that he too had met with the risen Jesus. Seldom is the historical authenticity of any of these testimonies of the genuine belief behind them challenged by respected critical scholars, no matter how skeptical. And last, although not the empty tomb lacks, doesn't, lacks the nearly universal acceptance by critical scholars that the earlier facts enjoyed, the majority of scholars, like I said, 75%, still clearly claim that the empty tomb was probably an historical fact. Shortly after Jesus' death, his disciples believed they saw him from the dead. They claimed that he appeared to individuals among them as well as to several groups. Two of those who once viewed Jesus as a false prophet later believed that he appeared to them. Paul, the church persecutor, and James, the skeptic, Jesus' brother. Both of them became Christians as a result. Therefore, not only do we have the testimony of friends, we have also heard from the enemy of a Christian, of Christianity, and one, a skeptic. And finally, we have the empty tomb. These facts point very strongly to Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which accounts for all five facts very nicely. Is it true that God really loves us? Could it be that a relationship with God is truly available to us? Can we really have eternal life? If Jesus really rose from the dead, the answer is yes to all three questions. However, as any good historian and scientist knows, a good theory must be able to answer objections to compelling theories. Competing theories, not compelling, competing theories. Any opposing theory to Jesus' resurrection, however, is going to have to account for all of these facts, as well as others. Gary Habermas wrote another book, The History of Jesus, and he's got 12 facts in there. For example, one might speculate that the disciples experienced grief hallucinations. But grief hallucinations cannot account for the empty tomb. 
or the conversion of the church persecutor Paul, who have viewed Jesus as a false prophet and would not have grieved over his death. So that argument doesn't work. It doesn't line up with all five facts. One cannot argue that the disciples were lying about the appearances and stole Jesus' body from the tomb, since we can establish that they truly believed that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. This would not have been the case if they had been lying. We can also rule out the theory that the resurrection story was a legend that developed over time and was not actually taught by the original disciples, since we can establish that those original disciples sincerely believe the risen Jesus had appeared to them and taught it within a very short period of time after his crucifixion. These five facts that we have covered accomplish two things. They provide compelling evidence for Jesus' resurrection, and they stand as data or as guards against any opposing theory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, why our heads are bowed, I want to read one more testimony from the Apostle John, his vision in heaven in Revelations. Listen as your heads are bowed to the testimony of John in Revelation 5.11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living, creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive the power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and and all of them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. I pray that everyone here knows that their hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, that we dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, this rock, we stand. Amen.